they are taking a risk betting on you making that financial decision. Maybe they have to go to a boss and they have to spend some of their internal capital to get the budget, to get the yes, whatever it is. So there's a, a real personal risk and a real personal fear of how they are extending their internal capital, making a choice to work with you. But I think reps just eat right past most of the time. Hi, friends. Welcome to the WinRate Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Leslie Vanetz. Leslie is one of my guests on this episode of the WinRate Podcast. Leslie is the founder of Sales Team Builder and also is a great sales content creator on many channels. You should be following her on LinkedIn and on TikTok. Also joining me for today's discussion about sales effectiveness, the buyer experience, and increasing win rates are Kian McLaughlin. Kian is CEO of Trinity Perspectives. Now, Kian and his team have conducted thousands of win-loss interviews with enterprise buyers all across the world. And in today's roundtable discussion, he's going to share some of the key lessons learned from all of those conversations about why buyers choose to give their business to a particular seller. And also joining us is Amy Rohovchek. Amy is a pioneer in the sales enablement field. She's the host of the Revenue Real podcast, and she's a partner in my group coaching program called the Buyer Experience Bootcamp. Now, today's conversation focuses on the factors that influence the buyer's selection of a vendor. Now, you notice I didn't say the factors that influence the purchase decision, because there's an important distinction between the two that we're going to get into. Now, most importantly, Kian, after thousands of conversations with the buyers, asking them why they decide to do business with a particular seller, summarized his findings into a list of the nine reasons why sellers win deals and the nine reasons why sellers lose deals. So think about it. that's the 18 most important factors that influence why you win and lose. And guess what two factors are not on that list? That's right, your product and your price. Well, you're going to learn more about that. So stay tuned to the conversation as we dig into the real life factors that buyers are telling us really influence their decisions. Now, two items to business before we jump into today's discussion. First, if you're interested in getting even more actionable ideas about how to elevate your sales effectiveness and improve your win rates, then you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter. It's called Win Rate Wednesday. Each Wednesday, you'll receive one actionable tip to accelerate your win rate. So to subscribe, just visit my website, andypaul.com. And secondly, I would be grateful if you could take a minute right now to subscribe to this podcast, the Win Rate Podcast with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And since this is a new podcast, well, I'd really appreciate if you could also leave us a rating or a review because that really helps the show get seen by more people as they search for great podcasts to listen to. All right, are you ready? Let's jump into today's fun discussion. Today, my guests are Kian McLaughlin, joining us from Sydney on a Saturday morning. Very nice of you to wake up early to join us, Kian. Leslie Vanetz, joining us from... Chicago, right? I am Chicago today, yes. You're threatening to move, though, aren't you? No, but I just, I'm really embracing this nomad lifestyle. I know okay. that we're sliding out of the pandemic, but I'm staying firmly rooted in a digital nomad life. All right. And Amy Rahovchek. Amy, how are you? I'm fine, sir. How are you? <laughs> Good. So let's just take a minute, each of you. Kian, start with you. Tell us a little bit about you. Sure. Irish originally, living in Australia now, came out as a backpacker. 25 years ago and stayed. Needed to get a job, so joined a, a little tiny tech company as an inside sales guy, and then spent about oh, 12 or 13 years in the tech space working for companies like SAP, ran channels, did a bunch of stuff. Burned out early. I think I hit my, my midlife crisis earlier than most and became a cubicle escapee about 
a decade ago, a little bit more, and set up a, a company doing a bunch of different things in the sales space. But the thing that was maybe a little bit interesting or unique about what we did was we actually started to do win-loss reviews for mostly big tech and telco firms. And we've done that for a decade. And in the past 18 months, I decided that I wasn't working hard enough so to set up a SaaS business as well. So we took everything we'd learned over a decade, and we kind of distilled it down and built it into a platform and started to roll it out. And now we're able to do win-loss reviews, not just on the really large strategic deals, but on the run rate deals for businesses. So that's where I'm focused. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun and it's very interesting. Now, didn't you meet your wife on that backpacking trip? I did. That, that's okay. kind of the reason I stayed. Yeah. Right over. I, I skipped. She, I think she photos somewhere in the background. Yeah. Every good story, there's a girl involved and uh, she was backpacking from South Africa. I was backpacking from Ireland and Australia was kind of a happy medium. And so here we are 25 years later. And you chose a place that's convenient to both your families. Yeah. Convenient in the sense that it's like 14 hours and 24 hours for them to fly. So, right. so, so they hate us, but yeah, they, uh, <laughs> oh, very nice. All right. Leslie, a little bit about you and what you do. I mean, I was, before we hit record, just trying to figure out how I could go visit you in Sydney. So if your family doesn't want to come, I'll figure it out, Ken. Don't you worry. <laughs> I am a founder. I also escaped, certainly due to some burnout, although I'm not going to, well, never say never, but hopefully I will never make the crazy decision to then start rebuilding and scaling a SaaS company. But I am uh, the founder of Sales Team Builder, and we focus on sales training especially for teams that are outbounding and trying to figure out how to talk with folks instead of talking at their prospects. What a great what idea. A, what a change. Yes. What a novel concept. Uh, <laughs> <so much. laughs> all right, Amy. Hi, all. I'm Amy Rahabczyk. I, I love answering this question by saying I'm, I'm just a revenue human for life. I sold enterprise tech for 15 years, built out two sales enablement departments, playing and dabbling in the marketing and content creation side of things right now. But I also work with Andy on our win rate accelerator program. And so it's a delight to be here chatting with everybody. So thanks for inviting me, Andy. No, pleasure. Thanks for coming. So tough question, Robert, just to start off. When you're carrying a bag, what was your win rate? Kian, start with you. Look, it would be pick a number, different companies, different win rates, but I'd say kind of 40%-ish would be there or thereabouts probably. But don't owe me to that, Andy, because I've got no, got no data to well, back it up. That's, back, we've been yeah. with your former employers. We've talked to SAP <laughs> and they said, <laughs> and they call, and they call BS straight away. Yeah. They, yeah. They, they Andy just holds up a scroll and opens it with all of your numbers from your career. And then I have to start explaining what happened in that quarter. What happened in that quarter? There's a reason for that. <laughs> Leslie, how about you? That is a really tough question. I'm like, immediately my, my brain is running with metrics. And I think, like on the low end, it probably sat around 25%. Like I'm thinking of the first team that I owned and it was four qualified discovery meetings to one deal where the, the sort of ratios that we worked on super transactional sale. And then as I moved through my career and, and moved into more consultative roles, the win ratio increased. My most current role, it was really high. Like it was sitting like around 50%. But caveat, we did not open opportunities until the lead was qualified on the discovery call as a decision maker who had budget control and was interested in buying like at least within the next year. So there was a little bit of qualification that happened before the opportunity opened, which increases win rates, obviously. That's where that's when they should enter the pipeline. 
I mean, that's my opinion, but like before that, but yes, anyway, I have, I've argued that point until I'm blue in the face and the amount of teams that opportunity is automated as being opened the minute that the meeting is scheduled. It drives me nuts. I don't understand it. I don't think it reflects reality, but I know I'm just an expert. Yeah, just because an SDR thinks they're qualified for a meeting doesn't mean they're a qualified prospect. Yeah, uh, Amy. Yeah, I my I finished my career at seventy three percent enterprise at Thomson Reuters. I was selling it to law firms too. I was fortunate and privileged, if I may, in that I was taught how to sell by my dad. He was a VP, and so I learned very early on, very differently. But I still, when I coach reps like Andy, I was just showing this morning one of the guys that I'm coaching right now. I mean, asked for three meetings last week and had four people say yes. And so we're focused on that conversion and that win rate very, like at the very beginning. And so it really does kind of kind of trickle down. But that's where mm. I was. That's how I so know he, it's possible. You mm. said he asked three and got four meetings. So somebody he wasn't talking to gave him a meeting? Uh, net new, yes. Oh, perfect. Love those ratios. More than 100%. Um, well, so same line of questioning a little bit is... What's an acceptable win rate in your mind for an AE or individual contributor? How long is Pete the string, Andy? It's, yeah. there's, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of factors there. Size of the deal, the length of the sales cycle, how many moving parts are involved, how many touch points. Yeah. I think it really varied, but I'm seeing win rates drop quite significantly, and I'm seeing do nothing or elongating sales cycles become a significantly bigger factor than they were even a couple of years ago. So I think there's the win rate factor. But then there's also all of these other component parts. So if, it, if we're winning them, but they're taking us six months longer and the deal values are shrinking and a bunch of other things are happening, then sometimes we're winning bad business. So there's real struggle out there right now, at least certainly in the world that I'm interacting with. No, you raise a great question. I think that, unfortunately, most companies don't really understand or look at those variables now, understand how they're really influencing things. Yeah. Leslie. Yeah, I think that's a, a really smart point. I mean, I think there's like the cap, the cost of customer acquisition on one side. So so maybe it's less about the exact win rate and knowing the overall formula of does like does are the maths mathing? Does this make sense to be pursuing customers at like with this set of steps at this price point? And uh, I, I think another point for me, Andy, is the are deals being lost? to no decision? Like, are they just sort of going into the ether? Or have my AEs gotten to a point where the person has come back to them and given a a, a real objection, but an objection that's like, this is a yes for me. And here's what it's going to align to our internal projects. Or it's not a no forever. It's not a ghost. It's not a no decision. It's not a yes today, but there's there's something else happening. And I think like there's the win, there's the we're going to win it, it's just not today. And then there's the never going to win it, no decision, stretched out for nine extra months. And then there's a situation change where the deal got lost. So I think there's a, a bit of nuance in there. Sure. And yeah, in those cases, you're talking about that, you know, they perhaps at some point, maybe they'll come back and so on. Fortunately, a lot of those stay in the pipeline for a long time. There's, I call them zombie deals. They never die. They just kind of walk into the future quarters and it's weird and crazy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the resistance for reps to close lost deals is, I mean, I get it, right? Like we're a hopeful group. We're a very hopeful group and we're hoping that somehow it's going to become a yes, even though we fall asleep at night knowing that we've already lost the deal and just haven't marked it closed lost yet. 
But it's also because they're being asked to have three times and four times cover of their pipe and that sort of stuff. So, so you're actually being almost kind of disincentivized from killing things dead because it gives you the perception of cover. And so I see a lot of reps kind of holding stuff in their pipeline, which in their heart of hearts, they know it are, are never going to happen, but it just kind of takes the pressure off. So yeah, it's, some of that I think comes down to the leadership in the organization and their willingness to allow people to kill stuff and then go and backfill it. Yeah, I mean, we still, as long as this idea of pipeline coverage ratios is still front and center and frontline managers are not incentivized, certainly measured the ability to keep those high. Yeah, have sellers with the incentives are trying to manage their boss, uh, to Leslie's point, by keeping these opportunities in the pipeline, yep. even though they're mm-hmm. zombies, as you said. I'm yeah. totally stealing that can. <laughs> oh, it's all yours. Yeah. I was the opposite. I used to stick stuff in the bottom drawer and keep it till the end of the quarter and then pull it out because... I had a boss who, yeah, exactly. I had a boss who would try and commit things on my behalf. She's like, Keen, you're good for 600K. I'm like, no, I'm not. I've got like max 250. And so we had this crazy tug of war all the time. So I was burying stuff in the bottom drawer in, in the hopes that I wouldn't be, it wouldn't be committed on my behalf. And this is the weird dynamic that happens in, inside organizations as well. Yeah. But that's not relatable. Did anybody else have uh, an automated system where if a deal moved to X stage, like in my last gig, it was stage four, an email was sent to ELT that something had reached, like, I remember what it was, like 80%. So I, w- I wouldn't, and I would tell my reps to not move things to stage yeah. four until it was like, they said yes, like legal had looked like, and then it goes from like four, six, seven, eight, like all the yeah. way yeah, through. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, no, like the CEO is going to get that email. Do not send it. Don't progress it. And you're like, first four child. My reps are so good. They go straight from four to nine straight away. They're amazing. And it's effectively, that's why leadership. Yeah. Our skills in negotiation, just really bad at amazing. getting to the, yeah, that's once we're there. The training I did last month on the topic. Yeah. yeah look at it go. May I take a stab at answering this question about sure, what's a good sure. number? I think there's there are two things that come to mind for me, and, and, but not to bury the lead. The number, I think you should be winning at least more than you're losing. So 50, 51%, 50.01%, Andy, I know you and I are of like mind on this one, but mm-hmm. I think it's a good point. Now, when can someone expect to get to that 50% is the question. Um, obviously, factors what you're selling, who you're selling it to, where the maturity of the organization, key things to consider. But also, how long have you been selling? Uh, You as the rep, how long have you been in AE specifically? And so I also truly believe in giving a person ourselves, like first and foremost, the space to kind of grow on that journey as well. And so maybe if you're in the first year, I think 35% is a good aspirational number. And then from there, 50 and above. Fair enough. Now, a message from Alego. If you want to save money on your sales tech stack, but don't want to sacrifice productivity, then you need a Lego. Lego's modern revenue enablement platform provides everything you need for effective onboarding, coaching, product launches, sales content management, and conversational intelligence. You'll be able to consolidate up to seven different tools and save on software spend while improving adoption. There may not be a more efficient way to do more with less. Lego's platform is unmatched in driving alignment across sales, marketing, and enablement teams. And will increase your ability to leverage peer-to-peer knowledge sharing, quickly source content and messaging insights from the field, and increase learning engagement and retention. So don't let too much tech hinder your team's performance. Demo Alego's revenue enablement platform today at alego.com forward slash demo. 
That's alego.com forward slash demo. All right. So we're going to focus on Kian in this episode because early last year, Kian, you told me about this work you had done where you had uh, summarized based on your decade plus experience talking to these hundreds, if not thousands of uh, executives about win-loss analyses, the enterprise buyers that you'd summarized into two slides, which I think are just priceless slides, nine reasons why you win big deals, nine reasons why you lose big deals. And I wanted to go through those and, and talk about those because I thought it was just so well, eye-opening for the biggest reason being is that of those 18 combined reasons is really none of them about the product or the pricing. It's about you, their buyer's experience with you as a seller, fundamentally. Yeah. And such an important lesson for sellers to learn that primary factors driving the decision, not the sole factor. So the primary factors driving decision environments, especially when products and the pricing associated with them are all perceived to be relatively the same. It's you, you're you, the seller, you're the difference maker between winning and losing, mm. which is both good news and bad news, right? I mean, the good news is you control largely some of the factors in your own performance and the things you do in front of the buyers to help them make the decision, but the bad news is when they say no, it's, it's yeah, because of you as well. Mm-hmm. So I just want to go through some of those, these data points, sure. um, because again, I think people understand this and this, again, this is sales. We crave data and this is data set based on interviews. How many, would you say, how many interviews? Oh, look, we're, we're certainly into the thousands, Andy, and that kind of sits across some procurement, some C-suite, some, some business users. So yeah. we get a bit of a mix of the different right. stakeholders. Yeah. So I'm just going to run through the nine reasons why you lose real quickly. Then I'll go back and we're going to dig into them individually. Okay. So nine reasons why you lose big deals in no particular order. Generic marketing content. Two, the seller is seen as unprofessional or unethical. Three, failed to make an emotional connection. Buyers. Four, seen as too risky, too cheap, or too niche. That's the only... That's the only Mention of pricing is you're too cheap. Five, no internal coach or poor C-suite engagement, so you weren't mobilizing the resources you need within the customer. Yeah. Weak or no win themes. Excuse me, seven, focus too much on your product, not on the problem, which uh, there's other data that's been out there about that, that 72% of buyers report that sellers show up prepared to talk about their product, not their yeah. problem. Yeah. Eight, not seen as an industry leader. And nine, poor use of resources. So- I just wanted to dig into some of those. Then we'll talk about the nine reasons why you win. But the first one I want to chat about was failure to make an emotional connection. So, go ahead. I mean, well, you kind of alluded to this. So there's been a bunch of surprises for me over a decade of doing this, right? And product and price is incredibly important at getting you from the long list to the short list. But what gets you from the short list to, to, to being selected as vendor of choice is much more the stuff that, that you just referenced there a moment ago. And I kind of summarized that as product and price, short list. People and purpose is what gets you over the line. Right. The thing that surprised me most in over a decade of doing win-loss reviews is how often the customer references by name the salesperson, the pre-salesperson, the solution architect, or combination thereof. We become the personification of the brand on our business card once we start to engage with the customer. So if they have a really good interaction with us, it ripples in a bunch of different directions. But what it's actually saying to them is this is what you're going to be like to work with. They've been responsive. They've asked intelligent questions. They've added a little bit of value. They've been patient. They've taken the time to understand our challenges. A bunch of stuff like that speaks to the, what's it going to be like when we sign on the dotted line? Because there's a ton of fear, right? There's this kind of sense of, 
buyer's remorse, the closer we get to the line that, hang on a second, are we doing the right thing here? Does it make sense to move away from our incumbent or there's a lot of risk? The one thing that we didn't talk about in that list of nine that I would probably start to put in there now is that risk has actually jumped up the, the decision tree and it's, it's closer to the top than it's ever been. And risk isn't just organizational risk. Yes, there's a bunch of financial risk and security risk, but there is reputational risk and individual risk baked in there as well. And our capacity to understand that and then demonstrate that we're a safe pair of hands, that we understand the risk factors for the individuals that are making a buying decision, that we can help them mitigate those or share those, or even at least understand those. There's a bunch of stuff happening. So, and you've written about it in your books, Andy, like, we, we buy with our hearts and we justify with our heads. But as an industry, we have this terrible tendency just to sell to people's heads, feature function. This is how we can save you money here. This is what we can. And, and all of that is good. It's all goodness, but it's kind of, it's just one dimension. And so I think we're struggling sometimes to recognize that if humans buy from humans, B2B is a fallacy. It's humans on both sides of, of the equation. There, there's just a bunch of stuff that we can do to make that interaction more engaging, more interesting, more just more enjoyable. And then the sale almost takes care of itself in some respects. Yeah. So the answer is chat GPT, right? <laughs> I was kidding. So the answer is just chaffs. Forget the GPT, just have a chat. Right. Well, no, I was just kidding. Cause you know, if you spend any time on LinkedIn, you know, the, oh, yeah. the, guys, the guys, the answer to everything. So yeah, yeah. anyway, Leslie, what's your take on that? I am actually a digital human. This is just an AI version of me here today. So Whatever you want me to say, just type it in. No, I love that. There was actually some data from Forrester that came out a couple of months ago. Ken, that really backs up what you're saying, that buyers have actually pivoted away from that fear of missing out being a primary motivator, and it's been replaced with fear of messing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Matt Dixon and Ted McKenna wrote that in Jolt Effect, yeah. Yep, yeah, Jolt, yeah. So I, like, I think that's all we've been there. I think maybe it's being said out loud more. It's being documented. And I think what's what salespeople miss is that when they get the fear piece, they think about what are the cybersecurity risks, the reputational, they think about the risks for the business. Mm-hmm. And, and not often enough do they think about the fact that this person that has to bet on you, the company, they are taking a risk betting on you, making that financial decision. Maybe they have to go to a boss and they have to spend some of their internal capital to get the budget, to get the yes, whatever it is. So there's a real personal risk and a real personal fear of how they are extending their internal capital, making a choice to work with you that I think reps just skate right past most of the time. It's, oh. it, it, it's really interesting. I'll often tell salespeople, don't just focus on your customer, focus on your customer's customer. So who are they trying to deliver an outcome for internally in their business or external stakeholders or partners? Who are, if you understand that, and if you can get around, virtually get around their side of the table and say, okay, how are we jointly going to deliver this outcome for your end customer? It, it changes the whole paradigm because now it's not about you buy my thing and then you're on your own and you have to go and do it. Forget about the, the sales piece. What are you trying to, what's the outcome and, 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 and who needs this and, and what sort of pressure are you under? And how can I become your safety net? That's a very different conversation. Yeah. And you, that's one of the, you have on one of your nine reasons why you win is being able to do just that, right? Is be able to address what's the value for your customer's customer, just for the customer. Yep. That's right. Amy. I think there are a couple of things that come to mind. And I, I want to start by just acknowledging that there's, I don't think there's anything about our society that is the same as it was three years ago. Hard stop. 
and including buying, buying software. I mean, fundamentally different. It's, it, and it's, I don't think we're talking about it enough. Like how people are buying is way different. And we as organizations that aspire to meet these buyers where they're at, not just as individuals, but as buying teams need to do a lot better at listening and letting go of whatever it is that we thought we know. Is it the methodology? Is it the, I don't know, the process and our stages? And it's just like, throw it all out and get back to the drawing board. And I think that the company or the the teams that are radically able to shift their focus away from themselves, their product, and dare I say their demo and focus on the business problems that the buyer collectively is trying to solve with the knowledge that it's hard to collaborate right now. Right. Mm -hmm. And so really helping to support the communication, specifically the miscommunication that is inevitably going to happen with the buying team, including on the marketing front. Like I I loved key in about what you said about the generic marketing content as being like number one problem. But also like I know which companies are winning right now by looking at the marketing content that is helping one department communicate with another department from Mm -hmm. the front. And so Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's just something that I would toss in there that everything that we think that we know how buying has been done is different now. And those that are are making that switch or starting to like open their minds to that reality, I, I think are really going to start to pull ahead. Look, well, Kian, I want to ask you a question. Maybe sure. what you're seeing in your data is in this back to this idea of the emotional connection, are you seeing salespeople travel more now? As this is to Amy's point, as things changed, sure, we went sort of boomerang one way, or excuse me, swung one way, but are we swinging back? Because yeah. there, is data that, there is data coming out, and there's one a study that MIT did that I was just looking at earlier today, that there's substantive differences when people actually have a chance to see each other in person. Totally agree. So I am seeing that. Uh, different geographies is probably quite different, but I'm certainly thinking down yeah. here. Two things are happening in the last... I'd say this January, much, uh, much more people are going back into the office. So those kind of ghost town offices that we've all seen over the last period of time where the milk is going stale in the fridge, it's not happening anymore. They're all coming back in. So the big CRM companies, the other big tech companies certainly live far of the world. But by association, now they're back in the office and most of their customers are back in the office. They are starting to, it's not back to the level it was. People aren't jumping on a plane and doing it as frequently as they were. But those face-to-face meetings are starting to happen. And you know what's really interesting, certainly for some of the younger reps or the ones that have only been in, in their role in a particular organization for, for two or three, this is the first time for some of them, they've had face-to-face meetings with their customers and they're like, oh my God, like it's just expediting things so much faster than four Zoom calls over an extended period where we can eyeball people, we can read the body language in the room, we can have the banter beforehand and immediately afterwards. And, they walk you out to the lift or, and you have that little extra conversation where you find out why was Sarah giving me the stink eye. And, and all of a sudden, it's t- the stuff that many of us were kind of so used to, we just took it for granted. But I don't know if we'll ever kind of return to where we were. But I think those sales cycles tend to move quicker. Whether it's to a yes or a no, they tend to move quicker. Well, yeah, A, we shouldn't go back because, yeah, my experience has been with a lot of companies as clients and companies I work for is travel was used as lazy travel, Mm. right? They traveled when they didn't need to travel when they probably shouldn't have spending a lot of money and it wasn't advancing the cause. Yep. Yep. But on the hand, there's also people think, oh gosh, we can do this all remotely. Thus we should. I'm a huge believer just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Mm. So yeah, I'm just interested in this 
balance that people strike, because it should have been the balance that should be in place all along, is, yeah, are you traveling for a reason that's going to make a difference in your ability to win the deal? Well, riddle me this, Batman. What if we, like, if we were winning 75% of the time and we knew that the investment that we were making in this travel yielded more of a greater chance of actually closing the deal, I, I think we'd see a lot less resistance to for kind of making these choices as well. I think there should be lots of experimentation going on at the moment because, and it goes to your point, Amy, right? If we, if we all agree that we're in a brave new world, then none of us have the playbook for this new world. So all we can do is kind of take what, we, what used to work, take what's worked over the last couple of years, mash them together, and then start to kind of trial things. But I'm certainly seeing reps saying, I'm having face-to-face meetings with customers now, not all of my meetings, but some. And those sales cycles seem to be moving quite a bit quicker. So it's just start to sort of play with an experiment. But there's one other thing in that list of why we lose that I wanted to pick up on. Oh, yeah. Unprofessional or unethical, right? Yeah. Now, that's a terrible thing to say because, you know, we've all, we, you know, we're all in, in the industry. We love it. And I don't think people set out to be unethical for the most part. You know, that happens very rarely. We have had a few examples. But the unprofessional piece, no one sets out to be unprofessional either. But in this sort of the hyper busy KPI driven X number of meetings, yeah, all that sort of nonsense, what's happening is stuff is just slipping through the cracks all over the place. And so this desire to kind of get to speed or to get to KPIs is causing all of these things to happen. So you send over a proposal document, but you've done a search and replace, but you forgot that something wasn't capitalized. So you've now got the name of another company in there and it's like, big red cross. We're seeing these things happening all the time, particularly with younger sellers on kind of lower value, higher volume transactions, because they're just in this kind of fight or flight mode all the time. And here's the thing, you're not winning or losing by 50%. It's little tiny increments of 1% that you're picking up for, from the very get-go, from the very first conversation with the SDR, right the way through the AE, the commercial. And there's all this invisible friction in the sales cycle. And it's our job to kind of understand where that is. So we're seeing a bunch of that. And that to me is very concerning because you can do a great job 95% of the way there. And then you can lose all the trust by just doing something dumb one at one point. And yeah, it's, we've well, got to be super careful. I've done that. I've accidentally oh. sent the wrong pricing to somebody oh, it? and it cost me a deal. <laughs> we've all done that. Been there. Uh, I've copied the customer on an email I'm sending internally about why the hell they aren't signing and really just like cringe. We had one, I'll just share this quick. We had one recently where the customer said, look, this isn't the reason that we didn't pick this vendor, but if we had been leaning towards them, this would have been the reason. And we're like, what, what are you talking about? And they said, so here, they shared their screen. They're like, here's the, the tender response they sent us. You'll note here that somebody turned on track changes and written in the margin, we've just made up these case studies. And then one of their colleagues responded, that's okay, just put it in anyway. And then they PDF that and sent that as their final version to the customer. Wow. That, yeah, that blows it up in a big hurry. But, but it happens. This stuff happens sure. all the time. Right. And to your point in general is, yeah, I like to pose the question to like when I speak to groups and so on is, so tell me, what was your margin of victory on your last deal? Hmm. How much did you win by? And people are going, you talking about the price? I said, no. How much did you win by? Were you win by 1%, 2%? Quantify it. So you have to presume that everything makes a difference. Yeah, it does. And yeah. these tiny, seemingly tiny things to buyers, there are no small things and they never forget. There, there, I'll just say a very funny story. There was an Australian speed skater who, who won gold in the Olympics 
uh, a guy by the name of Stephen Bradbury, and his surname has become a verb now in Australia, do, doing a Bradbury. What happened was basically everyone else fell over in the final race. At, like literally, they, they just knocked each other over, and he was at the very back and had no chance. And he just skated around and crossed the line, and he won gold in the Olympics. So, so that's called doing a Bradbury. But what we're seeing is this is happening literally where deals I've worked on, where you, you've drunk the champagne. Where how good are we? And then you talk to the customer and you do the debrief, and they're like, "You were terrible here, and then this happened. You were appalling here, and then Oracle did something else, and we kicked them out. Then this happened, and you're like, "Oh my god, like we were atrocious, but we still got the deal." So. We, unless you do some level of analysis, we just make stuff up. We make a ton of assumptions. I won, so I must have done a decent job. I lost, so I must have been terrible. And actually, it's all the nuance in between there. That's the value that we need to be extracting. And yeah. I love that. To that, to that point, as um, yeah, Leslie and Amy jump in, is friends that closed, yeah, had some data they did, win-loss analyses. Yeah, Ken, you're familiar with them. And, yes. And they found that the reasons sellers give in the CRM system for why they won a deal or lost a deal only matches the buyer's reasons 15% of the time. Yeah, wow. Oh, let's I'm, I'm actually surprised at 15. Les- <laughs> Leslie, Leslie, go ahead, Leslie. Give your, your jaw just drop for those who are uh, listening and not watching this. What's your rate? I mean, that's, yeah, that's a, that will just capture that and make that the cover of this pod is just my face with my jaw, just with the look of like, oh my gosh, that's an atrocious statistic. But I mean, I think like key in it, it speaks to what you were saying that like people aren't necessarily winning deals. They're just not losing them. Yeah. And I see that so often in doing retros on deals or they're like, oh, we won it because we had the best price or it's just like, it's something that that is a real like superficial reason. And it's like, no, we won the deal because their CEO's number one metric for the year is X and they have to reach this goal by Y date or they're going to lose their bonus or potentially get fired or somebody's going to get their promotion. So we needed to backtrack that to onboard them. Like, that's the reason you won the deal. And they're like, no, I'm just pretty sure we like had a better price than the competitor. And it's like, well, that too, I guess. And you, I you have said to, that I just have like to... you said that, just like a bro too. That was really good. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie, do you have an experience working with bros? We may not. Okay, I have to. Like I was dying on this one, friends. I, so I, this is one of my favorite things to teach reps how to do is to go back and do these uh, retros, after action reviews, whatever you want to call them. But actually, go back to the buyer and ask them. And I've helped people draft emails or whatever. But one of the, I think the key piece that is so important, and even for that small percentage of people that are brave enough to go back and ask the questions, whether you won the deal or whether you lost the deal, either way, there's gold in them hills. But here's what I would coach people on is when you first finally, like you've done your small talk and then you ask, like, listen, I'm not trying to change your mind, but I'm curious. Tell me what happened behind the scenes. Like, what was it that made you go whatever one way? And then you listen to their answer. But Nine times out of 10, that first response that they give you is never the real reason. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it, it just never is. It's like the root cause of asking five whys. And so, I, I mean, I sold data and I used to say, like, the only thing worse than making a decision without any data is making a decision with bad data. And so for anybody, again, that's going back to ask these questions, understand we have conditioned 
the prospects to tell us exactly what we think we want to hear. Oh, it's the price or, oh, like, oh, we lost the, I don't have the budget for it right now. And again, that's very rarely what's really happening. And unless you have that accurate part, uh, piece of information from the mouth of the buyer, you see, there's no way that you can iterate on like what improving whatever it is that they, they get back to you on. And I would even venture to say this is one of the key pieces of why I was able to get my win rate to where I was because I never made assumptions about why I lost. Like I went and found out and then I made those changes quickly. And now a message from Closed. There's a cheat code to revenue growth. You hire Closed to simply ask your buyers what you could do better to win their business. If you talk to enough customers, you eliminate all the guesswork around what products to build, how to consistently outsell your top competitors, and even how to retain your most unhappy customers. The simple practice is like using a metal detector to find buried treasure in your business. For example, one closed customer noticed a pattern in his closed one buyer interviews. Customers kept saying, we totally would have paid more for this product. So this revenue leader took action. He increased prices by 30%. And you know what? They didn't even see a drop in their win rate. That's an immediate increase of 30% in your revenue. So improve your win rates, unearth win-back opportunities, and discover other revenue hidden in your business with direct, candid feedback from your buyers. Here's how Closed can help you get started. Closed is offering all my listeners a free gift. Just go to winlosstoolkit.com and they'll send you a bunch of valuable tools to help you get your win-loss program started. The toolkit includes a comprehensive guide to running a successful win-loss program, an ROI calculator, and they'll even perform your first win-loss interview for free to help you see the value of getting feedback directly from your buyers. So visit winlosstoolkit.com today. Amy, can I jump in there on that one for sure. a second? Because this is really kind of central to, to the thing that I've been doing for more than a decade. I was at SAP and I started getting really frustrated at not understanding why my deals and the, the deals I was involved. So I was like, there's got to be a better way. Uh, could we go and talk to the customer? Everyone's like, no, you can't go and talk to the customer. That's not the dumb thing. So I was like, oh, well, <laughs> let, let me just, because I'm just so dumb, so I'll do it anyway. Yeah, yeah. Hey, if there's any chance I could come in and spend an hour with you and kind of reverse engineer the, the buying process you went through. And, and a bunch of them said yes. And then they started talking and they were candid and it was, but a couple of things I learned and ultimately this is why I kind of stepped out to do it was we're putting people in a little bit of an awkward position if we're asking them to give feedback about us to us, right? So that's one of the challenges. It's you need to create a, an environment where they feel super comfortable being candid and honest and transparent giving feedback to the individual that feedback is about, that's one challenge. So I will always advise an organization to have someone who wasn't actively involved in the deal, have that conversation, create a little bit of separation, because that's easier for the customer. But the second challenge was they started telling me stuff. I, I didn't know what to do with it because they're like, give me feedback about my boss doing a terrible job and coming in and trying to put pressure on them. What do I do with that? Or telling me that one of our pre-sales guys was a Muppet, he didn't know what he... So what do I do with that? So that was the other issue. It, now you've got all these kind of like little explosive, now you've got all these bombs and you're like, what do I do with these? Because I'm not the right person to come in and drive change or, and, and the whole point is if we're going to take the time to, to kind of lift up the rug and shine a light on this stuff, the onus of responsibility is, is on the company to do something with that insight. There's no point in trying to, oh, no, that's a bit, that's a bit politically sensitive. Let's sweep it back under there. So you actually need to create the right environment, A, for the customer to be honest, but B, for us to do something with the stuff they're telling us. Otherwise, it's, what's the point? Well, the point I was going to make before, point. which sort of aligned with that, was just you learn so much when you do this, is that you begin to understand, that, I believe, and I wrote about in my book, is that 
more often than not, the customers are buying from you in spite of you, not because of you. And as a seller, I think that's a horrible place to be, right? Is if it's, they're not making an affirmative decision to buy from you, but sort of holding their nose and saying, well, we should go with them. It's not sustainable in the long run, but B, for you professionally, you're deluding yourself. Mm. And I think this is, you know, leads to a lot of issues for sellers to sort of go down that path. Mm. Get this information so you can be in a, <laughs> the person who actually is the difference maker and you know, helps the customer make the decision rather than sort of being a barrier they sort of go around. It's really simple. It's like just stop selling, start helping, start consulting, start advising, start giving them whatever it is. Take the honest, because the thing is, like, as soon as we start selling, we get that invisible pressure on our shoulder. And then that kind of pushes to the customers. And we're a little bit salesy and we're a little bit kind of too pushy. And we're a little bit, can we skip past that step? We've just got to get rid of all of that and just say, look, don't know if we can sell you something, but let's see if we can help you in this interaction. And then you earn the right to move to the next step. And that's the sole role. That's like, that's all you have to do is just earn the right to move to the next step. Forget about making the sale. That will take care of itself. That should be in a book somewhere. Okay. We're a hashtag. <laughs> hashtag. Or like somebody's hashtag like, or like their entire sales methodology like, they teach. Yeah, yeah. Really, you serve me up there, Kevin, not let us thank you. <laughs> I did not pay Kevin for that. I did not sell no. him that or <laughs> not at all. It was so good. It was well placed. Well, I was going to run quickly through the nine reasons why you win. We sort of touched on some of them. Sure. Number one went beyond marketing to thought leadership. So obviously that becomes part of differentiation. Constantly validated assumptions. We talked about that. Don't assume the buyer understand. Talked about risk. You manage risk and cultural fit. And you talked about how the risk profile is changing these days. We just talked about this next one. We added value at each step of the buying process, which is absolutely critical. Everybody pretty much, if you've listened to me at all in podcasts, you understand where I stand on that. Mm. Another point you mentioned, Kian, focus on your customer's customer, mm. strong peer feedback, strong win themes, answer the so what question, and seen as easy to do business with. And those, again, no product or price in there. Not, not anywhere. No. Not at all. The easy to do business with one is, is fascinating because I kind of, I think I alluded to this. There's all of this invisible friction in every kind of sales cycle and we don't really see it because we've been doing it for so long that we're, that we're blind to it. But there's a, like, there's a bunch of stuff. And I, I see this when I talk to refs, they'll send me something to say, oh, this deal's gone quiet. I'm like, why are you asking the customer to do that, that, and that? You could do those first three things. I'm like, well, that's just how we do it. Well, that, that's not a good answer. Like. How, how do we just become super easy to buy from in, in a bunch of different ways? Like reduce the friction, reduce the step, just make it a more pleasant experience right up to the line, but also after the line as well, in terms of the onboarding, just joining that up. I just see a bunch of businesses and maybe it's the space I play in, but we talk a good, we talk a good SaaS game. We talk, but then there's all that stuff that's actually quite antiquated and quite sort of unstructured and just frustrating. So that's a big one for me is just strive to become easier to buy from. It's massive. Well, one, one of my favorite examples of this, especially in complex deals, is, and my rule of thumb is, your odds of winning are inverse proportion to the number of times you ask the customer to tell the story. So you're the seller, and you're out talking to the customer, and then your boss comes in, and mm. he acts like he's never heard anything about the deal. Yeah. So, so tell us about you. What are you really interested? Because he thinks you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And then 
the director level comes in, does the same thing. And then the VP comes in, does the same exact thing. And the message the buyer is getting from this is, well, why am I talking to Ian? Because everybody above him is questioning him. Because clearly they don't think he, they don't trust him to give the information because they're asking us to tell our story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this one, as when I was a seller, just used to drive me nuts. And finally, I yeah, had to tell higher ups just exactly what to say. Shut up. Ideal. I don't think you can say this is these aren't them. <laughs> well, you know what? If you, if the higher ups come in and say this is what I understand about your story based on what Andy shared with me, that speaks that volumes. That speaks Absolutely. volumes because it's like we yeah a we care b we're joined up. But I mean that stuff is so much of this stuff is obvious when you say it out loud. But when you get inside a big organization which is metric driven and it's all kind of trickle down economics, it just gets lost. And we think if we move. Like, like Leslie was saying, if we move an opportunity from stage four to stage nine, it's going to close and, and that's fine. But that's not how things operate in the real world. Mm-hmm. Feels like, well, I got to deliver on the forecast. So unless I hear it from the customer's mouth myself, yeah, it's not real. One word that we didn't say at all when it comes to serving buyers at today's friends is learning, right? And I know value as Andy just defines in So Without Selling Out equals progress, which is brilliant, right? Value equals progress. But what is progress? Progress is the buyers having learned something in every interaction with you. And for reps that are focused and managers of teams of reps that are focused on ensuring that the buyer learns something. I mean, everything else is, I think we're overcomplicating it. I totally agree. I have a top tip that is frictionless and a great way to add value. And it is something that I see 99% of people get wrong. So when people are trying to do it right and they're trying to make those deposits and lend that value throughout that like prospecting and brine process, they often will share a 20-page white paper, a seven-page case study, right? So they're making the deposits, they're sharing the things that they feel confident are relevant and valuable, but it is putting something else on the plate of the buyer. It is overwhelming. And the easiest little thing to just say, hey, here's white paper X, Y, Z, scroll to the bottom of page 12 based on ABC priority you shared in our last call. I think it's really going to be a powerful insight for you. Like even just making it easy for them to get the value that you're trying to share with them. Yeah. Remove some of that friction. I love it. But you know what that speaks to also? It speaks to the kind of the personalization and relevance and caring because because you're enough to be able to pull out that section on page 12 and say, this is the thing that's going to be of most value to you here. One of the big frustrations for our customers is I'm, I'm getting bland, vanilla content from you. I'm getting your RFPs, your, R, your commercial documents, all that sort of stuff. We talked, Andy, one of the things you, you mentioned from my list there was like strong win themes, right? People are often say, well, what is a win theme? It's one of those kind of throwaway expressions. For me, a win theme is, Something you've found out in your discovery conversations that's important to the customer times something that we do well, right? And you're already going to probably have two or three of those. But if you can flow that through the demos, through the commercial documents, through the tender responses, through whatever it is, and continue to validate that, it just speaks to personalization and relevance and understanding of their business. And if others aren't doing it, you're immediately differentiating yourself. Because we talk to all these customers, they say, we read the RFP from top to tail. And for a bunch of them, it's just literally cookie cutter, search and replace, comply, comply, whatever. So then you get a document that's actually kind of intelligently written in a narrative style. We heard this just the other day from someone. They said, 
Like we got two, we, we short list of two. And one of them was intelligent answers that were personalized and narrative and tailored and good. The other was just kind of literally just, yes, we can do that. Happy pace, yeah. So, so immediately what you're doing is you're stepping out ahead of the pack. There's all of these opportunities to step out ahead of the pack if we care a little bit more. If we, to Amy's point, if we try not to automate everything, but we actually kind of bring in a little bit of uh, human nuance into it. Not everything. We don't have to automate. We don't have to build everything from scratch each time. This is, I think, the really interesting balance that we're trying to strike between AI automation, all that good stuff, and we're still human. Can you make it interesting? And I don't know how we find that balance, but it's, well, it's tricky. Yeah. But I think what I take away from that is, and have, do you understand us? Right? Yeah. And because if you understand us and then you know, we start fashioning together, we start creating this or you know, like all vision of success, right? What success is gonna look like. We're heading down this path together, that becomes that narrative, right? That gets woven into everything. And it's this common sense of what success is gonna be. And yeah, Forrester did something on this twelve years or so ago, a study about if you're the first seller to get the customer to buy into your vision of success, create this together, your odds of winning are like 65%. That's exactly what the stat is. It's like one of my favorites. It's a a big number. So what do you have to do to get to that point though? Things we've talked about is you gotta build that connection. You gotta bring value at every step of the buying process. You gotta make sure you're listening and really understanding the customer's unique perspective on their challenges and what they want to achieve. And if you do that, you're going to be more aligned. And if it is something ends up in you submitting this you know, proposal in response to a, a down select RFP, then yeah, your odds of winning stand pretty high. Can I just throw a bit of a curveball in here as well? Something that made a huge difference for me a couple of years ago was I felt I was doing good discovery in the conversations I was having, but my documentation didn't look particularly slick. It was kind of stock standard. And I started working with a designer and he was amazing. He was like, okay, I'll take that and I'll visualize that and I'll put that into a, a framework. And so all of a sudden it was like, you've, you've done good work to, to tease this stuff out, but now you make it look amazing as well. And one, one of the things I'm seeing some organizations are getting much, much better at is just some creativity and innovation around the bid management piece. They're actually, they're recognizing that if it's some bland PDF with page after page, it's a real struggle, right? So so th- there's amazing things that we can do with design. There's amazing things we can do in a bunch of different areas. Why don't we just level it up? So you level it up and all of a sudden your content's better, but the, the look and feel and that kind of, we do judge a book by its cover. Well, it's like, these guys must be amazing to work with. But look at what they've done up until this point before we've even engaged them. It's, right. it's really right. interesting. It's subtle, but it's right. interesting. But it's such a critical point though, just to bring up is this, again, I think you brought up originally, Kian, is, is through your selling, the customer is able to sample what it's like to work with your organization. Exactly. It's really what you're telegraphing. So if you're yep. not paying attention to detail versus you are paying attention, if you feel like you're going the extra mile, it really demonstrates you understand what's important to them. It makes a big difference because yes. at the end of the day, and this is not new, but it's become more and more the case is buyer's mind, the products and pricing, all the same. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, we're just about the end of time. So we're not end of time down in the global sense, but just for this thing. <laughs> <time, laughs> <laughs> all going to go to our caves now on the top of the mountain. 
The whole place is on fire. Everyone just save yourselves. (laughs) We're all just the meme of the dog sitting in the house that's on fire saying everything is fine here. (laughs) So I really appreciate everybody joining us and look forward to having you all back again. Is uh, So, Leslie, if people want to connect with you and learn more about what you're doing, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, this is a treat. It's always a treat. Thank you for having me. Find me on LinkedIn, just my name, Leslie Vanettes, and then my handle on pretty much everything else is B2B sales coach, except for TikTok, where I'm at sales tips talk. And Leslie is the person, sales TikTok, right? You're a, you were the pioneer, practically, I think. I was. I was I was one of the, I think I was like the third or fourth person to post B2B content and the first woman by like months. And now I just mostly post rants. So beware, but I have moved my daily B2B sales tips and techniques to YouTube so that I can hold my TikTok for rant and videos where I read people's LinkedIn posts in a dramatic fashion because they are so cringeworthy and deserve to be mocked. Yeah. So your rants are like uh, equivalent of, get off my lawn. Yeah, but I got to wave, yeah, yeah, wave yeah. my fist while I'm recording them. Yes, yeah, yeah. Andy, yeah. <laughs> keep your cringe on that platform we save tiktoks for all the cool stuff <laughs> all right amy if people want to get hold of you and yes. listen to your podcast tell us about your podcast as well yes of course my show is a great place to check out all things revenue real the show's called revenue real hotline and you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts and also i'll second what leslie said i'm over on linkedin and i love engaging with people and so good luck spelling my last name but other than that if you can find me we can pick it up from there Ian, people have trouble with my first name rather than my last name yeah, yeah. so uh Don't yeah true, sir. Think, think about, certainly Ian rahovchuk that would be that would be a mouthful yeah <laughs> <Good> job. <laughs> Uh, definitely head to LinkedIn. I'm not as, as versatile as Leslie, so I haven't kind of expanded out to Instagram and, and TikTok yet, but I'm going to head over there and check out some of those rants because they sound pretty good. So LinkedIn, certainly also head to use Trinity.com, which is our, our win-loss SaaS platform. If you want to check it out, there's a bunch of content there. For me, I, I, I'm always happy to, to, to share the interesting stuff that we're finding out because I feel like we sort of, we're in an unfair position. We get to look behind the, the curtain and see what's actually happening. So that's a unique position to be in. So yeah, very happy to share that content uh, with anyone who's interested. Just reach out and connect. Perfect. All right, everyone. Thank you so much. Look forward to doing it again shortly. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode of the WinRate Podcast. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guests, Kian McLaughlin, Amy Rehovchek, and Leslie Vanettes for sharing their insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, the WinRate Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, just a quick reminder, please subscribe to my weekly newsletter. It's called WinRate Wednesday. Each week, you receive an actionable tip that you can put to immediate use in your selling, become a more effective seller, and increase your win rates. So visit andypaul.com to do that. Again, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>